Hello, DanceWell listeners. This is your co-host, Marissa Schaefer. Since season one of DanceWell podcast, I've wanted to have Lisa Howell join us for an episode. Fast forward to episode 86 and the end of our fourth season, and here she is. On this episode of DanceWell podcast, Lisa and I will speak about a topic you just can't avoid when working with dancers in most Western genres, and that is turnout. We speak about a range of topics, including where turnout comes from, and what can limit it to the repercussions of forcing turnout and the subtleties of maximizing the range you inherently have. Lisa shares so many important pearls and excellent metaphors and anecdotes on this episode. I hope you all enjoy and learn something new. Lisa Howell is a physiotherapist, author, speaker, and creator of theballetblog.com, which has revolutionized how dancers think about their bodies, injuries, and performance enhancement. Lisa owned her own physiotherapy practice, Perfect Form Physiotherapy, from 2005 to 2019 with the mission to create the highest quality physical therapy care for dancers in a nurturing environment. Since July of 2019, she has been solely focused on developing teacher training workshops and online resources to effectively share the knowledge gained from over two decades of working exclusively with dancers with the wider dance community. Lisa's focus is on education to prevent injury and maximize performance rather than waiting for injury to occur. Details of all these programs and courses can be found at theballetblog.com. Buckle your seatbelts. On this episode, nutrition, life coach, dance and performance, psychological development, today you are in for treat. Hi. Hello. This is Ellie Kushner. And this is Marissa Schaefer from Dancewell Podcast. Dancewell Podcast. Hello, Lisa, and welcome to Dancewell Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I am so excited you're here. Ellie and I have actually been talking about having this episode and asking you to join us since season one. We're on season four. Mm-hmm. So yay for finally yay. making it. Um, we yeah. are talking about a subject that Lisa is very familiar with, which is turnout. And it's very mm-hmm. fundamentally important to a lot of dance styles that we work with. So um, let's just let's just go for it. Um, Dive right in. Excellent. So can you start by describing the different ranges of turnout. I think this is so great because, you know, as a, as a dancer myself, I was like, turnout. Yeah. Yeah. First position, right. Fifth position, but there are many more ranges than just that. So can you talk to us about those? Definitely. And this is something that I'd work on a lot in clinic because dancers would come in and say, I want more turnout. And I'd say, which one? What do you mean? Just turnout. Now, do I say we have at least seven different ranges of turnout? You have standing leg turnout, turnout on fondue, turnout and retiré, turnout devon, sitting in second, a la second, up the back. Which one would you like? And they'd say, all of them. them. But that would always open the conversation and say, look, I have to assess your hips in all these different positions because whilst you may be struggling in first position, in a grand plié in second, you may have amazing range. Or when your leg is lifted, you may be restricted, yet you have a flat fifth. So whenever we start looking at turnout, I encourage people to go, actually, it's different in every different position because where the hip is placed in the socket is totally different. You can be amazing at one and really struggle with another. And then also we need to look at whether it's a passive restriction or whether we just can't use the range that we have. And there are so many different elements that we're going to explore that restrict each of those. But just keep in mind that based on dance style, based on the level that you're dancing, you will require different ranges in different directions. And it's super important that we focus focus on establishing a really balanced range in all directions rather than 
heaps in one and not enough in another. Sure. That makes perfect sense. Let's just go back for just a second. For our dancers mm-hmm. who are listening, can you um, can you tell them a little bit about what passive restrictions are? Excellent. Yes. So a passive restriction is where there's actually mobility in the joint. So if somebody's testing you, if they're holding your leg, they're holding your pelvis, they can actually move your leg into a rotated position. An active restriction is if you actually have range, but you can't really use it in class. And I'd see this all the time, especially on pre-point assessments. Mm -hmm. Students who thought they didn't have good turnout, when I laid them down and actually manually moved their leg to try and find out how much range, they had ridiculous range of motion in their hips. So it's really important to have your hips assessed if you think you're struggling with this by somebody who knows where it comes from. About 80% of people have so much more range than they actually realize. And they're trying to do either aggressive stretches or aggressive strengthening exercises without understanding actually how much they do have and the Mm -hmm. subtle ways of getting it well. Mm -hmm. So I like to make the distinction, do the joints move enough? passive range or joints and muscles and fascia and nerves we're going to talk about that a little bit later but also then how much of that can you use in class and this is what your teacher will see so some teachers need to be very careful about telling a student that they don't have great turnout because what they're seeing is how much turnout that student can use now Mm -hmm. and that may be actually limited by them trying so hard I always got told that I didn't have good turnout and it was my bones and I believed my teacher. Then when I was 26, I had a four-hour massage by one of my staff members who I'd paid to put through a massage course. We Uh didn't mean it to be four hours, but he just went through everything. And he did all of these deep openings around my hips. I got off the table afterwards, did a grand plie, and my knees went completely sideways for the first time ever in my life. And I burst into tears. And he said, why are you crying? That looks great. You don't understand. And this was when I was 26. I was already a physio, um, but I had been told it was my bones and I instantly saw that it wasn't. Mm -hmm. I had been holding so much tension in the muscles and other tissues around my hips that I'd actually been blocking myself from my own range. So this, that's when I completely changed how I looked at hips to really carefully assess them and go, okay, which, which ones do you have? Which ones don't you have? And what is actually restricting the parts that you don't? Is it bony or is it something that we can work on? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And <clears throat> I wanted to also go back to what you were originally saying. Again, for dancers who are listening, like why, why is it important to be balanced in the different in the different ranges as opposed to having heaps in one because I mean listen we all want that gorgeous you know totally externally rotated like leg up to the side with that dewdrop foot mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. yeah um for the health of your hips right. um and your artistic expression so from my physio brain I want to make sure that all the cartilage on the top of your hip is getting worn nice and easily if we do repeated movements one way we tend to wear it down over time which is why so many ex-professional dancers end up having very early hip replacements in their 30s 40s 50s yeah however artistically even if you don't care about injuries (laughs) the classic example is a grand rond de jambe on layer People will open to the front. They'll struggle a bit there. They'll open to second. It's okay. Then it does a big drop before it goes to the back. So most people don't think about their turnout in that halfway position between second 
and the back. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure that we've got a good available range in the transition moments between each of those ranges as well as each of the pure ranges because your job as an artist is to be able to show the choreographer what they want to portray. Sure. Yeah. You don't want to be limited by your body. Mm -hmm. And I always say, I, I have this interesting play between being clinician and artist. I was a dancer before I was a physio. So my job as a physio is to get the physical body out of the way so you can be an artist. Mm -hmm. So I always like tracking it back to what are we actually trying to create? How can I make it so that there is so little restriction in your body? You're not blocked from doing anything artistically because there's something going on with your body. Awesome. Thank you. That was really clear. Okay, so we started to get into this, but I want you to talk a little bit about where turnout does, or I should say should come from. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So the thing that most people think of and say, yep, this is where turnout comes from is from the ball and socket joint up in your head. Mm -hmm. And yes, this is true. Mm -hmm. So in all ranges, we want to get a nice sliding rotation of the ball in the socket. Mm -hmm. However, there are some other factors that come into play that a lot of people don't think about. So yes, you have the joint. You then have the ligaments that lie over that joint. Mm -hmm. Some people have floppy ligaments. Some people have stiff ligaments. Some people who've been trying to stretch into an overstretch position will have floppy ligaments at the front and tight ligaments at the back. This will mean that the ball of the head is not sitting in the center of the socket and it's often shifted forward, which can actually alter the range of turnout as well and lead to all other kinds of head issues. Mm -hmm. Then we've got the fascia, the connective tissue that goes in around the joint. We also have nerves covering over the joint. We also have a lot of muscles. So we have from the deepest layers through to the outside layers. We also have your sacroiliac joint, which is the joint between your tailbone and your actual kind of pelvic bones. And that actually does contribute to your range of turnout. If you have, say, slipped on the snow, as you have in the US a lot, and you've <laughs> fallen on your sacrum and it's got a bit jammed, that may limit your range of turnout. Alternatively, if you've had a pregnancy and especially a natural birth, if that sacral joint is very, very sloppy, the muscles around it often grip on and that can block your range of turnout. So a well-functioning sacral joint is really, really, really important. There is also a certain component that comes from the knee and the foot. Now, we want this to be as little as possible, as much as necessary. Sure. Um, so a little bit of rotation will come through the knee, a little bit will come through the foot. But if we are overdoing those two, that's when a lot can come to injuries. So we want as much as possible up in the hip and pelvic complex. And then we will get a little bit of an extra spiral down through the leg. Right. That makes sense. And so when you're saying like, so you, you've started by talking about the ball and socket joint in the hip, right? And then you mm -hmm. talked about the, the ligaments and the nerves and the tissues around that. So when you're saying mm -hmm. like your, your turnout should come from around there, you're talking about like the play of the tissues around the socket has a lot to do with what you're getting. Right. Yes. Yeah. So it's very interesting. In some situations, the person has a, a really good bony makeup. Mm -hmm. They have a nice hip socket, not too deep, not too shallow. They have a really nice ball. But because they haven't got very good stability, so they may be hypermobile and a little bit floppy, if the body doesn't feel safe, it will contract on with all the muscles. Sure. So it tends to brace around it. So they won't even know how good their turnout is because the muscles around it are trying to compensate all the time just to keep them in standing. 
So what I often find is that as I start to work with dancers on their deep stability, their deepest core stability and the deep control of the hip, their turnout range opens up to ranges that they never even thought possible. Mm -hmm. It always felt really blocked and like it was never going to get better. But once we actually give the body some support and it can relax a little bit more, then their range often opens out enormously. So it's very important to look at all of those different tissues and work out which one is actually blocking them. Absolutely. Yeah. So definitely like a theme from what you were saying from the beginning to now is like the quality of the movement is absolutely key. You can't just like do a clamshell, right? Or like Mm -hmm. do this that's supposed to give you more turnout. You really have to look at like how you're accessing, right? This, the rotators and the stability system in your body. Um, And I mean, this is kind of a self-serving question, but when you're giving um, dancers exercises to, you know, help them with stability and help them with turnout and where otherwise they were kind of like held and stiff and blocked before because of these compensatory strategies or, you know, the body's trying to protect them. Do you find Mm -hmm. that when you're giving your dancers these very focused exercises that you also have to accompany that with some manual work to tell the body like, hey, calm down on the outside? Yes and no. So 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. yes. Um, The more I've learned about the body, the less hands-on I find I have to do. Mm -hmm. And what I'll often do is if I do need to do some hands-on to show them how much they've got, I'll often do it on one side. So I identify the tissues that are really tight and I do it on one side and I go, oh, that's amazing. Can you do it the other side? And I say, no, you're going to do that yourself. And then I'll teach them ways of getting that same opening with things they can do at home. So in the olden days, I used to do heaps of work and the dancers would get very addicted and dependent on me. So this would become a problem when they were actually off achieving their dreams and going overseas. I'd get these calls, I have to come back to Australia. Like, no, you you were exactly where you need to be. And so I learned that I needed to teach them, yes, what was possible, Mm -hmm. but the very next thing was how can you achieve this yourself? So finding really good ways of self-treating I think is awesome because especially with COVID now, nobody can go see a therapist just whenever they want. And cost-wise, you can't go and see a therapist as many times a week as you'd like. So the more self-management strategies you have, the better. Um, Just tracking back quickly to what you said about the clamshells. It's a really classic turnout exercise. The thing that I usually bring up around that is teachers often give students what worked for them. Sure. Mm -hmm. Which will work for some. So but we need to have a larger toolkit to be able to help create range in all different kinds of hips. Mm-hmm. So some hips will respond well, some hips, it's the worst exercise they can actually be given. Yeah. 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 And again, it depends on how they're doing it. So that's why there is no one magic turnout exercise. There is no one program that's right for everyone. Mm-hmm. It's all about finding out what that hip is currently doing it and how we can help it move better. Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so before you went back and talked about the clamshell, I was just thinking mm-hmm. about, you know, I, I've said this before on, on episodes in the last year, but I think the, the magic of COVID, there's not real magic behind COVID, but the, the, some of the silver threads here is the definitely giving people more active interventions. And I think mm-hmm. so much in dance, we rely on, and I'm sorry to all of our listeners, if you 
heard me say this a million times, we rely on folks like us or even our teachers to tell us what to do and put their, our hands on them and really and fix them, quote unquote, which I don't necessarily believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've found that, you know, through COVID and giving people more active interventions, kind of like you're talking, like there's this agency that they develop, which is fabulous as well. So I'm like totally on board with this active treatment um, modality and it's, you know, yeah, less tiring. And I think it's, it's something that we really need to encourage mm-hmm. in students. And I, so often the high level students that I work with, they're going off overseas at 15, 16. Right. So if I would start working with them at 11, I'd say, look, honey, I'm here for the next four or five years. I need to teach you how to look after yourself. So if they know how to actually assess themselves at the start of a day and have a big toolkit of things that can help, then they can prepare their own body to get the most out of class Mm -hmm. rather than just this is my set warm up. This is what I've been told to do. And I must do the same thing every day. They can have a feel of their hips and go, oh, that's a bit sticky today. That feels a little bit neural. I know how to do a neural glide for my my left side. Great. Oh, now that feels better. They become a lot more inquisitive about their own body and a lot more fluid and experimental with if I feel something, first question, what have I been doing to make my body feel different? Mm -hmm. Second question, Mm -hmm. what can I do to help resolve it? But it's a very, as you said, internal agency rather than, oh, I need to go and see a therapist and have them fix me. And I, I noticed a shift when students would come in in the olden days, they'd come, something's happened to my foot. Can you fix it? Now they tend to come, oh, we've had this new choreography and I think I've been wearing shoes that are a little bit too soft and this is what I'm feeling. Yeah. I've been doing X, Y, and Z. What else should I be doing? Sure. And I go, yay. <laughs> um, but that internal agency is exactly what they need as dancers long-term. So the therapist should be helping them guide along the way and learn more about their body so that they become more and more independent over time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So we talked about where turnout should come from. Where does mm-hmm. turnout sometimes come from when we don't really want it to come from there? <laughs> where, where do people compensate? Yeah. So the biggest of fakes that I will see in young students, they tend to do an anterior tilt. So they stick their bum up in order to try and get more range. Now, this may give them a temporary opening, but it actually contributes to a lot of tension in the front of their hips. So we definitely want to discourage that. And one of the real reasons behind a lack of turnout is actually a lack of deep, deep core control. Mm-hmm. Not the deep core control, I'm switching on my abs and doing 100 setups, but the ability to manipulate their pelvis in space with control. The ability to be able to have a good pelvic position and standing is actually one of the most critical things to opening up their hips. The other thing um, that I often see is people doing the opposite of going into a posterior tilt. Now, this I'll especially do this in a grand plie. So they'll go down and then they'll tend to tuck the pelvis in order to overly rotate the legs. Again, this is a temporary trick, but it often leads to a lot more tension. And I really focus on keeping a tiny lift through the top of the sacrum as they go onto their grand plie, which will actually open up their deep, their range a whole lot more than they expect. Mm-hmm. So really watching the pelvic tilt, super, super important. Other people will tend to overturn their feet. So they'll try and stand on a line and place their feet while they're in a plie and then straighten the legs. Mm-hmm. The issue with this is that it often gets forced into pronation or rolling in. 
they then try to lift their arches with the tendons around the inner part of the foot. And so this can often lead to a lot of long-term tendon issues, tendinopathies, and a lot of pain around the inner part of the ankle and under the foot. Also stress fractures from the foot not being well aligned. So we always want to make sure that our foot position is governed by our hip rather than by lifting the arches, which is a cue that's often given. And then a lot of people who are a bit more mobile, so you've got quite hypermobile ligaments, will actually take quite a bit of rotation from the knee. Yeah. This is not great long term. Some people can't rotate from the knee. Some people can rotate an immense amount from the knee. And if we are winding up the knee to create rotation and then we're going into a plie and straightening, it's a great way to give yourself a meniscal injury. The menisci are the little pads of cartilage inside the knee, but compressing them and rotating them with a twist is a perfect way to rip one. So... Um, a lot of mobile dancers have had that somewhere along the line mm -hmm. because of getting a little bit extra rotation from there. So we've got to be really, really careful at the sustained alignment through. A little rotation in the knee is going to be okay, but if we're constantly screwing it, and especially if we're using floor pressure mm -hmm. to hold rather than actually any kind of muscular control ourselves, big, big issue. Um, I really like working with the rotator discs to see how much control they have of their current range because a lot of people do step their feet and use the good grip of the floor to maintain it but this will never translate to how your turnout works in the center so establishing good control early is very very important to being able to maintain control with movement absolutely absolutely um backtracking a little bit and i think you alluded to this again where when you talked about like where turnout comes from what in turn can limit turnout yeah, so <laughs> lots of things. Mm -hmm. So number one thing that's hardest to change is the bony makeup. But this also can be impacted. So if you think of little babies, um, some like to sit in the W sit position with their thigh bone really rotated in. When we are young and especially under the age of 16, um, 16 to 18 is when the growth plates inside your hip socket start to fuse. So anything under there, how we position the hip is going to dictate how it grows. A lot of people think of growth plates in people who are kind of 10, 11, 12, but the growth plates, the secondary growth plates in and around your hips and pelvis actually don't fuse until 16, 18, 22. So even some professional dancers still have active secondary growth plates in their pelvis. Oh. Yeah, a lot of people are super surprised at this. Mm -hmm. If you don't believe me, um, look up Y-shaped cartilage in the hip and you can actually find a picture of it. it. Your hip socket is in three pieces when you're young. This allows your hip socket to grow as your thigh bone grows. It would be very weird to have an adult-sized hip socket in a baby. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we need to keep in mind that there are growth plates inside the hip socket. If you have a little one who loves sitting in the W sit and they're rotating the thigh bone in all the time, your body responds to what you tell it. So they're going to end up with a slightly more forward facing hip socket and a slightly turned in leg. That's going to make turnout very difficult. Does this mean that we sit on small children and overstretch them so that they get good range? No. <laughs> so the biggest thing that I find that is great for turnout long-term is in the young ones, training them in parallel training them to be normal little humans, learning how to run and jump and skip in parallel mm -hmm. and develop stability in parallel is essential to developing the stability to be able to cope with turnout long-term. If 
far too many people turn out the toes of little dancers and then they wonder why they struggle later down the track. Yeah. They can't actually stand on one leg in parallel. So how are they going to be able to stand on one leg and turn up? So making sure that we actually build the stability um, early on. Mm-hmm. So we have the actual bony shape. Also, different people have different bony shapes. Some people have a really deep hip socket and they're really nice and stable. Some people have a super shallow one and they can roll through a second without even trying. My cousin had Down syndrome and they often have really um, open hips. Mm-hmm. I would find her asleep in the garden in seconds blitz with her head down in the leaves. Wow. And I would just say, Matt, can I have your hips, please? <laughs> because she was so rotated. So some genetic disorders and some genetics have much more open hips than others. Mm-hmm. Also, the angle of how the thigh bone sits in the hip socket can be different from person to person. But the biggest one that I think gets missed when looking at this is the natural deep core stability. And this I usually find if babies didn't crawl or if they've been in organized ballet all their life and have not much natural play. They don't climb trees. They don't run around in the the park. They haven't got a good natural robust stability system Mm -hmm. and they've been trying to work and turn out too much Mm -hmm. their deep natural spontaneous subconscious core is one of the biggest uh kind of secrets to awesome turnout control yeah Yeah. so most people focus on their hip component rather than the deep stability which is going to allow you to use the hip component awesome awesome you're like bringing in this excellent little subtopic of when is it too early to specificity (laughs) of training like kids be kids love it I can chat on the bringing in turnout age because that often gets asked a lot. Um, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, if, you, if we're not doing it with the little ones, when should we bring it in? I prefer to work in stages, not ages. Mm. So I've worked with Beverly Spell, who's in Louisiana. She has a program called Leap and Learn. And we've done a lot of work. Um, we actually have a program called Training Channel and Tiny Dances. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, we had ages and it was kind of three-year-olds and four-year-olds and six-year-olds. But in reality, it's stages, not ages. So there is skill acquisition that you need to develop before you can start adding on turnout. This applies to your adult beginner as well. So often what happens is if people take up dancing later in life, they go into a ballet class, everything's suddenly in turnout. They've been sitting at a desk for the last 20 years, they, their stability on one leg in parallel may not be good. They may need to do a lot more prep work in parallel, developing the ability to transfer onto one, developing the mechanics around the hip before they can actually be introduced to turnout. Yeah. So there isn't one magic age that, oh, you've got to be in parallel and now you're in turnout. You need to have dynamic stability on a supporting leg before you can add turnout. Awesome. That being said, little kids are super mobile often So having some safe, gentle stretches and mobilizers to keep the range until you're going to make them dance and turn out is actually a good idea. Yes. This does not involve sitting on them or standing on them. No, thank you. Thank you for that. (laughs) Good to know. Um, I'm actually kind of curious how you are assessing that deep core stability. Are you having them just perform dance movements? Are you having them do certain tests or what's that? Yeah. Um, For the little ones, it's a lot more functional testing. Mm -hmm. And I always watch how they respond. So if you have two little five-year-olds and you give them the same exercise, so say you've got one super hypermobile little five-year-old and one super stiffy little Mm five-year-old, you get them both to stand on one leg. Often the little stiffer one will stand on one leg without even thinking about it. 
the little hypermobile one, their upper body will wiggle around and they'll tend to have to use a lot more thought processes to organize themselves. Also watch their belly. If their belly sticks out or their waist widens, the exercise is too hard. If they've got a good natural functioning core, it will gather in subconsciously when they get challenged. So that's the best way to watch at whatever age. Is this exercise too hard or is it going to be good for them? Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And I imagine the, the kind of pushing out and the waist widening, what is that like, do you reckon that's like a valsalva or a superficial kind of uh, gathering of muscles? Mm-hmm. Things going yeah. on. So if you watch their waist and it thickens sideways, it's usually that they're using all the outer layers rather than the deep inner layers. So I always use the word collect rather than contract mm-hmm. your core. If you contract, you tend to brace on the outside. Yep, they often stop breathing and they can't actually use it when they dance, but they will get a thickening of the waist either sideways or forwards. If they get a collection, how our deep core is meant to work, it gets a slight narrowing. And it should be subtle. And I say it's like a dimmer switch, not like a light switch. Your core shouldn't be on or off. It's on various grades of onness mm-hmm. during different activities. Awesome. That was great. Very clear. Um, so talk to us about some of the repercussions of forcing turnout. It's a little mm-hmm. some more of them, I should say. Yeah. So the biggest one that I mentioned before was the issues around the inside part of the ankle. Right. Um, and for so many people, this is why ankle tendinopathies and injuries tend to keep coming back. So the pattern that I often see when people ask me for help is I had this injury, I had an FHL tendinopathy, or I had this issue with my Achilles, I had therapy, I got put in a boot for five weeks, and then I did my therapy, and then I've gone back to dance, and it's come back. And then I went into a boot, and then I did some more therapy, and then I went back to dance, and then it's come back. And the biggest thing that gets missed out, often when I look at the rehab they've been given, sometimes it's just not great. They've just been given rises. Like if you're just doing rises, that's not a rehab plan. However, if that, even if they've had really good foot rehab, often they haven't been doing the turnout control of the standing leg. Mm -hmm. And what I often do is film them doing simple tom de ronquois, but watch the supporting leg. And most often when they come to the front, the side, the back, their supporting leg will collapse in and there's load around the ankle. So standing leg turnout range and control is always my priority. So when we talked about the seven different ranges, all the different ranges you have, and I say, which one do you want? Sometimes they say, the one up in the air. (laughs) But for me, um, standing leg turnout range and control and being able to use most of your available range, about three quarters of your available range, is the most important one. We can't actually improve your turnout on layer if you don't have a good standing leg. Right. So very important. And this is important on both sides, <laughs> not just for the one leg that you like to stand on because you like having one leg in the air. We want to make sure that both legs are a really good secure standing leg that we can maintain a good range of turnout with a good foot position. So number one would definitely be issues around the inner part of the ankle. Mm-hmm. Following on from that would be stress, um, either stress reactions, bone stress, stress fractures through the first and second toe, Mm -hmm. because often if we're over-cheating with our foot, we are overly loading on the inner part of the foot. So a lot of the foot issues actually track up to a lack of core control. 
We talked about in the knee, if we've got too much rotation, we can definitely get issues inside the knee with the meniscus or the ligaments. Mm -hmm. But we can also have issues with the tracking of the knee because the shin bone is rotating in relationship to the thigh bone. So things aren't really lining up very much. Again, a lot of people get knee strengthening exercises to help correct the alignment of their knee. I really don't think they're very effective. Most of the time, it's actually the control in the hip that is needed to bring the thigh bone back in line with where it's meant to be. Um, then the other thing that I didn't mention before, um, and this is more not in how people are working in turnout, but how they're trying to achieve better turnout. Sure. So if they're doing a lot of passive stretches, so a stretch where you sit and hold, this is usually the worst way to get more flexible, slowest and most dangerous way of getting more flexible. But what often happens, especially if they're sitting in second and overpressing or being pressed into froggy or trying to do an oversplit, often they will really strain the front part of the joint and they can get labral tears or irritation of the capsule. So I see that injuries in the hip tend to come from the stretching habits rather than the training habits. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I... You wrote an article, a blog article on overstretching, I believe, and you had this mm -hmm. great analogy about eating chocolate cake. Do you <laughs> yes. remember this? Yes. Would you mind sharing that? Because I use that now often sure. for my little, awesome. little ones especially. Yeah. So I actually use it for parents. Mm -hmm. So this would come up in clinic. And I had the one, the, the first time I used it was I had one kid who I was working with. She was 13. She was great. She had a super flexy little sister. And so we had done a lot of talking. And this kid had said to me, look, I know what my little sister's doing is not good, but mum thinks it's fine. Can you have a chat to mum to tell her that she needs to stop my little sister from doing this? Because mm -hmm. little sister's not going to listen to her. It's great. Smart Love cookie. these yeah. super aware kids. Yeah. The next time the parent came in, and I didn't want to make a thing of it, but we just casually dropped it into the conversation. And we were talking about habits and overstretching and things like this. And the kid kind of did a pointed look at the mum, and she said, yeah, Jessie or whatever, and Anna's does it all the time. And I said to the mum, look, we really need to have a think about this. And the mum said, well, if it doesn't hurt her, surely it's fine. Mm. And I just took a breath and I said, look, if she ate a chocolate bar, would she have any issues with tooth decay, getting fat, putting on weight, whatever? Yeah. No, one chocolate bar is going to be fine. I said, how about she eats 25 a day for the next 10 years? And the mum just looked at me and this shock horror went over her face. And I said, it's not a one-off thing. It's a cumulative effect. Mm -hmm. So if we're doing a little bit and 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 a little bit, it gets way too much very quickly. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is the little ones don't feel it. Right. Not because it's not doing any damage. It's because they haven't developed the internal kinesthetic awareness of their bodies to feel what's going on. Sure. Yeah. So if you have a nine-year-old who can't do a really nice, beautiful, fluid, tucky-tilty pelvic clock exercise, they don't have appropriate feedback in their brain of what their hips and pelvis are doing. So they will very easily stretch too much because they're not actually getting feedback from those tissues. Mm. Yeah. So a lot of it is actually about their inbuilt awareness of what they actually can feel. So they may be doing damage and not feeling it purely because they don't have the awareness inside their bodies. Awesome. Great. Very cool. Yeah. But I found that, yeah, the chocolate bar, chocolate cake awesome. analogy, they get it straight away because treat every now and then, totally fine. Yeah. You're not going to do it. 
manage. But if it's a regular part of your diet, that's actually going to have a big impact on your tissue health and how you are long-term. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So I wrote the first, you know, handful of questions, mostly from like a PT-ish perspective and mm-hmm. kind of dancer. But the, the next couple questions are mainly like based off of questions that I hear a lot when I'm in clinic, um, which is like achieving a 180 degree line. Um, so first off, do you feel that most individuals can achieve 180 degrees or not so much? No. Great. <laughs> like the literature However, says. Yes, please. However, I do think that most people stop short well before they've actually achieved them. Please explain. So, and I think a lot of health professionals shortchange people on this. So what I've discovered over the years is that, yes, getting a perfect anatomical setup that's going to allow 180 degrees is rare off the bat. Yes. However, a lot of people think it's their bones well before it is their bones. Mm -hmm. And with keeping this in mind, I've actually helped a huge number of people achieve 180 degrees. So it is possible, but it needs a lot of sensitivity. So what I do when I'm working with anyone with direction in any range is I use traditional tests as traditional stretches as tests rather than as exercises. So they go into second splits to the first whisper of a restriction. And I say, what do you feel? And I said, oh, I kind of feel this line of pulling down here. Then we come out of it straight away. And based on where they point to, how they describe it, I have a process of unraveling what kind of restriction it is. Is it a restriction in the joint? Is it a restriction in the muscle? Is it the fascia? Is it the nerve? And then based on that knowledge, we can give them an alternative mobilizer that deals safely and directly with that tissue. Mm. We then go back, reassess, oh, what do you know? It's better. So it's like peeling the layers of the onion. So while I say most people anatomically may not be able to get 180 degrees, however, it's not impossible. And it's actually more possible than a lot of therapists think. We just need to go slower and more intelligently Mm -hmm. and really respect the feeling along the way. The only time that then we end up stopping is when we end up with a bony hard end feel that it's not going to go further. So that's kind of getting them to that. Most people are not there yet. Right. So I think a lot of people shortchange their expectations based on going, oh, well, nobody can have 180 degrees, so we're kind of not even going to try. I'd just revisit that a little bit. Yeah. Absolutely. However, I only increase range if they've got control. That makes perfect sense. That goes back to that yeah. whole quality. Yeah. So a lot of people have way more range than they can control. I need to train them to use the range that they currently have before I'm going to teach them how to get further. Yeah. And this is how you get those beautiful skyscraper, gorgeous extensions. Mm -hmm. I am not opposed to extreme mobility. I am about doing it unsafely and not being able to do it till you're 50. Absolutely. Um, I want you to stop dancing because you're bored rather than because your body's dying. Right. Right. Yeah. That is an excellent goal. So you mentioned like a la seconde as an assessment. Are you also using mm-hmm. like if they want to have that six o'clock, you're using that six o'clock punch mm-hmm. or whatever? Or, oh, yeah, you're using that as an assessment too. Whichever, whichever position they want to achieve, we have to assess it passively with me taking them there mm-hmm. and their current control. Right. So Excellent. there's both sides. And then rectify the two. Awesome. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so what do you say to the dancer who comes in and they're upset because they don't have 180 degree, degrees turnout and they feel like <laughs> they need it in order to be a professional dancer or like their teacher is demanding that yeah. they have it? I usually use one particular example that I have is a very, very dear student of mine. And when she was nine, um, she was assessed, nine or 11, something very young. She was assessed by one of the local sports med guys and she had a turnout range of 25 degrees. And he said, no, nah, you'll never be a professional dancer. She has now been working professionally in Europe for the last 10, 12 years. You cannot tell she has any issues with her hips. Yeah. She, when I assess her now, she's doing all the work that she does. She'll hit about a 45 to 50 degree wow. turnout range. Um, but he said, it's your bones. Yeah. She has had label chairs. She has had all kinds of stuff in her hips, but she knows her hips inside out, upside down. And when she dances, you cannot tell wow. she's ever had any issues with her hips. Yeah, So much so, she um, was at Rombe in London mm -hmm. at the school and they got randomly assigned these different body areas to do a research project on and she got the hips. And so she called me and we put heaps of stuff together. And then when she submitted it, the director called her into his office and said, where did you get this information? She said, oh, my physio in Australia, blah, blah, blah. And he said, can you teach me? And I think he was wanting to check that she actually knew it, but also fascinated himself. Okay. And so she said, I had the director down on the floor in his office teaching about his turnout and how to switch off his glutes. And she was 17 at the time. Wow. And he was fascinated because he said, I've never heard it worked on like this. So for her, she got told that she could never have it. We looked at the restriction. I went, well, this is not actually bony. It's it's not, not the most awesome hips. However, there's a lot of stuff we can work on. And now she's had a very successful, beautifully artistic career of working with them. So anyone who usually comes in like that, they usually have more than she started with. Mm -hmm. So I usually say, look, you're already 20 degrees more than what she had. So how so about you just keep it going? Yeah. Yeah. So I use that as an example um, of someone that I know and a lot of the kids knew of her she's such an exquisite dancer and mm. like oh my god I never would have expected that she had any issues with her wow so yeah. question I don't know if you can answer on her behalf or anyone else who's had similar issues like how did they deal with going into class and being asked to be in fifth position and the teacher is like um I'm sorry you need more than that yeah so this is a really interesting one um and my high level kids I talk about this a lot especially those who are in a company mm -hmm. um I talk about mitigating risk yes a lot yes uh -huh. so I have a couple of different ranges of turnout so we have super safe turnout nothing bad's going to happen uh -huh. we have working turnout where we're challenging it a bit and we have performance audition exam turnout where <laughs> yeah. you're cranking it yeah yeah so if you never push it, it's never going to get better. Mm -hmm. If you push it all the time, you're going to get injured. Mm -hmm. So as a dancer, you need to learn what are the ranges of turnout that I'm working on when I'm doing my conditioning exercises to make sure everything's beautifully patterned. What is the range that I'm using in class with my wonderful teacher who's super aware of injuries and will let me work in whatever range I need to at the moment because they know that I'm working on it. What is the range of turnout I use in class with my crazy Eastern Bloc teacher who insists on having flat turnout? And how can I crank it when they walk past and unravel it when they don't? Yes. So I yeah. actually teach them to customize this. And because I knew all the teachers in each of the studios and I knew who would allow this. So I knew that 
Miss Wells was going to allow you to do this. And especially if she had a note from me saying, look, this is what we're working on. Can we please have it a little less in class because of X, Y, and Z? Great, totally fine. Another teacher within the same school, no, flat turner, flat turner, all yeah. the time. Yeah. And the kids would be able to customize it. So overturning once is not going to kill you forever. Yeah. However, if you're doing it all the time, it will. And I saw this beautifully. I was in New Zealand, the Royal New Zealand Ballet, and they had a, a teaching day and an obs observation day. And I actually watched company members crank turn up if the director walked past oh, and then as soon as he walked past, just wiggle it back in. Oh, man. Yes, Amazing. fantastic. Yes. Self-preservation at its finest. Yeah. So shoulder off when I need to show. So I can do this, but I'm going to choose not to for 90% of the time because I know it's not great for me. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. So learning how to customize it during the day, I think is super, super important. And going, you don't have one range of turnout that you're working. No. Yeah, you mm -hmm. may have a different range that you're working in in your warm-up compared to when you're performing it may be different in one type of class compared to another so it's not one I have to be at 63 degrees every single time right well sometimes I'm working in 45 sometimes in 70 yeah be just moderate depending on how I'm feeling how my feet are feeling what the quarry is yeah absolutely yeah have the same conversation often it's like Everything comes with its inherent risks. Da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's that's excellent. Good. Um, okay, I asked you a bunch of questions. Is there anything I know you can talk about turnout all day? Is there anything um, important that you feel like I missed that you want to bring up? I think the biggest takeaway that I usually um, like saying is for people to get inquisitive about their own body. Mm -hmm. Your own story of your own body is your own story, and there are so many different factors involved in it. Critical things such as talking to your parents about how much you crawled when you were a baby, thinking about the things you do outside of class. In regards to hips, one of the biggest things that I focus on is their normal postural control. Yeah. So some dancers can have beautiful posture when they're doing the exercise. As soon as the movement stops, they slump. Yeah. That to me shows that they have an inherent deep core weakness. Mm -hmm. So looking at your postural control in between exercises and outside of class is actually one of the most beneficial things to improving your hip health. And I also really, 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 really encourage training in parallel. So most classical dancers do way too much work in turnout. If you get stalkerish and start watching the Instagrams of a lot of your awesome professional level um, company principal dancers, they'll often post training videos. Watch the amount of power work they do in parallel now. Yeah. Yep. Especially a lot of the guys tend to post it more than a lot of the girls, mm -hmm. but the girls do it too mm -hmm. because all the companies have realized how important training in parallel is to the hip health. Dances are a lot more expensive than they used to be. Yep. So yep. keeping them happy and healthy is actually really important. Yeah especially if coming back from any kind of injury. So Stephen McRae went um, busted his Achilles on stage and spent, I think it's almost 12 months rehabbing, doing amazing amounts. And he posts a stack of stuff that he does. Yes. Yeah. Some yeah. of it, there's a couple of things that I'd change, but um, there's a few things, a few things, but he does a stack of power work in parallel. This is super important. Working in Turner is not normal function. Right. You need to be able to do normal function before you add on the effect of Turner. Okay, so on that subject, do you also mm -hmm. work with them on turn-in? Yes, depending on their hip structure. Sure. So, yes, um, and especially mobilizing into that range because a lot of different 
um, contemporary choreographers will work in internal rotation. And I think to balance the amount of turnout, it is good. However, you shouldn't do it if it gives you pinching in the front of the hip. So some people force themselves into it. And if they have a very, what we call retroverted hip, very super turned out hip, there's, they may be able to just go to parallel and that's their internal rotation mm -hmm. because of the shape of their hip socket. So we just need to be careful with any turn in exercises that there's no pinching at the front of the hip. We're getting a gapping at the back rather than a pinching in the front. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And, um, I thought about a question I could hear one of my students asking regarding something you said at the very beginning, right? If they like mm -hmm. try to um, achieve more turnout, say in the frog position or a la seconde splits held, et cetera, and perhaps they have a little bit of ligament laxity in the front with some, you know, relative tightness in the back. Like I can, I can like hear people being like, wait, can, can I, can I fix that? Is there any way that I can fix that? <laughs> to what do you say? Or what do you say yes. to them? Always, your body is in a constant state of reformation. Give it different instructions, you'll get a different result. Yeah. Awesome. So if the head of the thigh bone has been pushing forward in the socket, all kinds of yucky stuff happens to the front of the hip. However, we can teach it how to drop back in the socket also. So we do a lot of work in parallel of letting the hip descend. Our manual therapy can help a lot with this, of creating space at the back to allow it to travel back especially if there are dance routines to stand and turn out, walk and turn out, sleep and turn out, sure. lift and turn out. Often we actually need to give them a bit of space, but I do a lot of work of actually recentering the hip in the socket to create more stability. Um, and those ones, their normal postural control is a massive part of that. Mm -hmm. If they stand with their feet wide and the hip slumped forward, it's going to stay. Yeah. Yeah. But correcting their standing posture is huge. Absolutely. And note that you did not say any prolonged stretch in the opposite direction, <laughs> but rather. Again, so when you talk about this, I just ran my level two teach training flexibility course. Mm -hmm. And the question always comes, oh, well, you don't like static stretches. Do you not do a static stretch ever? I said, well, well actually, depends. it depends. Mm -hmm. So if we have cleared out any bone on bone restriction, they've got released any restriction with the breath there's no fascial restriction there's no neural restriction sometimes we can sit on a very 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 subtle fascial hold I don't even like calling it a stretch mm -hmm. and we wait and this is where you start getting into your yin yoga style mm -hmm. where you're very very supported you're on like the first one tenth of a stretch mm -hmm. but if you've had restriction in your hips for a long period of time, often there's a lot of emotion tied up in our bodies. Me personally, when I started doing this for my hips, I cleared out all the icky stuff. And then I was in a yin yoga class, sat on this one particular opening, and then these tears just started to come. And I tracked it back eventually to enormous amounts of grief from when my grandmother died when I was 18. Didn't have the skills to process it at the time, so I shoved it away in the back of my hips. <laughs> um, and it all kind of came up when I actually gave it the space and time. However, if we are sitting on those stretches, it is one-tenth. It is the most subtle, subtle, subtle sensation, and we're waiting for it to let go before we go any deeper. You're not pushing into it. You are not having your pelvis hovered off the ground. It is all very, very, very supported and hovered mm -hmm. so that we can breathe and release in there. So... 99% of the time, no static stretches. If everything else has been cleared out and it's appropriate, I may do it. Go for it. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much to contributing this episode to Dance Well. I really appreciate you being here. 
my absolute pleasure. I just love having the chance to help people understand a little bit more about their bodies and to help demystify something that often is really hard for people mm -hmm. to access good information on. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of really inbuilt myths about hips in the dance industry for the longest period of time. I so I never had amazing hips and they're better now at 42 than they were when I was 16. So please don't give up. It's harder work for some of us and you just need to be more intelligent. Mm -hmm. Find the right person, ask the right question. Nothing is impossible. There you go. Thank you. And I know a lot of our listeners will know who you are, but for those of uh, those who have not come across your blog before, will you tell them where they can read more information about you and uh, blog posts, et cetera, other educational opportunities from you? Sure. Yep. So we have theballetblog.com. Um, and I started that in 2013 to try and help get more information out. So there are articles on everything from point work to turnout to flexibility. Uh, we have a lot of student-based programs to look into things in more detail, such as how to improve your point range without a foot stretcher um, and things like that and getting legs higher and developers and things. But I also do a lot of teacher training. And especially with COVID, um, unable to travel, we've converted all of my teacher training and workshops to be able to be done online. So the most recent ones, I had people from Iran, Japan, wow. Sweden, Singapore, US, Canada, everywhere. So we try and make them at lots of different time zones so that people can access them. And it's actually amazing how well it works online. I have been pleasantly surprised at how much we can get across with doing that. So until we can travel in person, um, that is really the, the focus is on creating, kind of distilling the last, 20 odd years of clinical practice mm -hmm. into help help people in the studio. And that's my focus at the moment. Great. Excellent. Um, well, thank you for being an amazing resource and I appreciate you. Take care. Great. Thank you. On behalf of Ellie and myself, I, Marissa Schaefer, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewell Podcast. Our intro soundscape was composed by the dynamic duo Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzy, and dancer-designer Katie Dean crafted our visual image. To those of you who have made this season possible by contributing to Dancewell, we are infinitely grateful. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Your donations help us to pay for SoundCloud membership, website fees and upgrades, and our recording technology. If you too would like to make a contribution to Dancewell, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support. And lastly, if you like what you hear, we invite you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search Dancewell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about this podcast by visiting our website at www.dancewellpodcast.com. If you have questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye.